that aren't bad enough to make fun of but also aren't like good enough to adore and then you're sort of stuck in the middle going i don't even know what to make of this episode <laughs> that's kind of where i'm at in this one folks welcome to the brothers trick about this week we're going to be uh discussing operation annihilate with the next exclamation point just to make it all the more exciting annihilates but i won't be doing this on my own luckily i got ken in houston here to back me up say hello ken peace and long life there we go all right well let's just get this out of the way now what do you think of this episode you know i i i I watched it not knowing where I would end up, right? Okay. It's been a while, but I really enjoyed it. <laughs> All right, so we got some difference of opinion going on in this week's episode. That'll be exciting. <laughs> Something to hash out about. I'll also just casually mention here, we got, uh, this is episode 29 of season one. That gives us uh, 30 episodes of the original series we've already knocked out. That's kind of amazing. Plus, you add in all those uh, amazing Discovery episodes that we did, and we're at like 45 episodes already. So that's that's pretty uh, fantastic. There's a pat on the back. Let's, uh, let's, let's jump into this already. First of all, I just want to point out Memory Alpha described this episode in the following. The Deneva colony is attacked by neural parasites that cause mass insanity while the crew of the Enterprises searches for a way to stop them. I love that they call them neural parasites because they never like once give us a good name for these creatures in this episode. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I just called them plastic jellyfish because that's what they looked like to me. Yeah, so like our, our first problem, right? Okay. Yes. I'll start off by saying something I don't like about the episode. Sure. Is the special effects weren't capable of dealing with this episode very well. Right. So instead, instead of seeing something that looks organic and that moves like a creature might move, it right. looks like a plastic jellyfish and moves like a plastic jellyfish dangling from fishing line. <laughs> Surprise, that's what it was. <laughs> Let's get into the writing of this thing. In August of 1966, uh, Stephen Carbostos, who was the original story editor, contract was also called for him to deliver an episode of his own. But with all of his rewriting on Court Martial and all of the other uh, little rewrites and helps that he put on, he wasn't ev ever able to write his own episode until after DC Fontana came on. So uh, that's when he uh, sat down and decided to start writing this bad boy. He was given the idea by uh, Gene Roddenberry. He didn't come up with it on his own. He said, uh, wouldn't it be interesting if we've got, you know, 
hive creatures that cause insanity on a planet, but on the other side of but on the other side of it are all part of a hive mind. So that was kind of neat. His first draft comes out a little bit darker than our version. He writes in the uh, in the treatment that the people of the of the Enterprise are about to witness a mass suicide of an entire planet. Unless something is done, some formula arrived at, some treatment is discovered. Already just talking about a mass suicide right off the bat. This guy's got it going on. Uh, in the early versions of an individual suicide. That is true. That is true. It's funny because uh, what I later write uh, about this episode is that uh, it starts off really good. You know, I think that there's a lot of like great ideas. We've got uh, the, the suicide happening, the the trick with the sun, which we don't know what that is yet, but it's already right. established in the teaser. The ideas of it are kind of cool. I just don't think that they're very executed very well. Mm-hmm. We'll get into more specifics as we actually get into the episode. But thats I think it starts off great and has a bold idea, but it just loses momentum for me uh, as we get towards the end of this episode. That's what I felt happened. Uh, but here in this original treatment, Kirk and McCoy also worry that uh, Spock might commit suicide. So that's a little bit weird. We have Kirk agonizing over the burden of this decision. You know, on the one hand, he does have, uh, you know, Spock. His brother, uh, but his brother and his sister-in-law and his young nephew aren't in the story yet. He's got this inner conflict going on as to uh, what action to take, whether or not to kill these millions of people. The original treatment ends with uh, Kirk using the Enterprise weapons to destroy all life on Deneva. <laughs> so that's uh, that was the original ending on this. Obviously very different. Right. Uh, McCoy, McCoy supports this, and he tells the captain... Uh, yeah, it had to be done, Jim. Someone had to make this decision. You had no choice. So uh, that was the original treatment. Obviously, once it went through the uh, vetting of the Robert Justman and then the the, sto- the rest of the story group, they were all kind of like, oh, maybe we need to adjust this ending a little bit. Uh, Stan Robertson from NBC uh, read this uh, episode and felt that it wasn't a fast enough pace. You know, that was his big thing always. He's He gets the, you know, he gets the aliens. He gets the landing on a different planet. He gets all the cool stuff in that regard that he gets, but he doesn't get the, the fast pacing. And uh, some, uh, he says that some recent audience research uh, told him that the show needed to open with a bang or that in many cases, the viewing audience might switch channels to ABC, CBS, and NBC, or at uh, ABC or CBS. Robertson was a little bit ahead of his time there because he decided, hey, we got to catch him in the teaser and we got to hold him there. Otherwise, they're going to they're going to change the channel. So I think this is also so TV's new. True. Really 10 years old or so. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's some shows that are earlier than that, but those are totally experimental. It's not like they were kind of locking down what TV's like in 1952. <laughs> right. And the result is that previous art forms, which were similar, whether it was the play or the short story, would predominate, at least in how the show would get written, right? So we've been talking a lot about the writers, right? Because they make the story, and then the story gets performed and turned into TV. Yeah. And you can take longer with the play, people are going to see it. It's not the, 
in a sense, the second best alternative isn't flipping the dial and seeing what's on, you know, CBS or ABC. The yeah. alternative is to get up and say, screw the $20 I put down. I'm going to go get a burger. <laughs> right? You're right. walking out of the theater because you're like, yeah. Right. You know, those sunk costs of that toast tickets, I don't care. I'm out. And so you have time to get people into a character or into a setting and then give them some story. Yeah. But in a sense, TV had to figure out what radio by this time had figured out. Was figuring out by 1952. You got to catch them in the first 10 seconds with a, a hook, right? That song mm -hmm. has to be catchy. And so TV feels slower. It feels, and of course, by now they figured this stuff out and TV's much better at pacing and keeping you interested and having a lot going on and make it like, oh, this is so fascinating. I don't want to change the dial. Right. So we're said about like late night TV, you know, you're like, oh, no, I'm going to go to bed. And then you see some like crazy murder happen on a show yeah. and you're like, wait, what's this about? What's what's happening here? Only detectives are interesting and there's a B story and yeah, and exactly. All the it's dialogue is good. I'll stay up another. Oh, it's an hour show. Right. Of all the actors, the only one I'm going to talk about here is uh, Craig Hunley. He's the guy who played uh, the little kid who played Kirk's nephew, Peter. He was uh, 12 years old and had been numerous guest stops already, guest uh, stars already on uh, My Favorite Martian and Bewitched. And uh, right after uh, he filmed this episode, he was added to the cast of Days of Our Lives. Even more interesting is that he would return for a bigger role in uh, the Star Trek episode, And the Children Shall Lead. But he's got a side career as well. Oh, he does? Yeah. So oh, you tell me. I missed this. In 1968, so just a year after this episode, okay. he forms a jazz trio, the Craig Huntley Trio, and also starts making his, his bones in the world as a concert pianist. He goes on the primetime competition show, Showcase 68, and he ends up tying with Sly and the Family Stone and then goes on that year to headline at Madison Square Garden with Deep Purple, performing oh, wow. jazz and Beethoven to a psychedelic light show. He's 14. <laughs> he played uh, piano on Frank Sinatra's hit song, New York, New York, on the oh, soundtracks wow. of such films as The Color Purple, E.T., Dead Poet Society. Uh, he worked with Stevie Wonder, Earth, Wind, and Fire. He, has, he, he starts writing... Uh, TV TV music. He did a lot of music for Knott's Landing. And, you know, after that, uh -huh. like in the 90s, he starts getting into filmmaking, mostly as a documentary filmmaker. And he's got a list of like a dozen documentary films that wow. win documentary awards and well-regarded there. Oh, that's crazy. Well, I guess when you get in the business that long, you know, you kind of find yeah. what your, like, niche is, and then you're like, all right, this is what and I'm doing. And you also, like, doors open because people know who you are, and they're like, oh, I'll, I'll listen to your yeah. song. It's pretty good. Yeah, exactly. Well, especially when you make it on, you know, the show that's basically the American Idol of the time, you know? Right, yeah. Yeah. 
Plus, you've it's already so got an agent. You know. Yeah. True. Already got somebody in the know helping you out. Yeah. So uh, an interesting thing that happened in this is because uh, City on the Edge of Forever went over a day and a half to finish all their filming. The director got an extra day. He, he was new to Star Trek. His name was uh, Doughtry. He had never uh, done any of the, uh, he'd never done any Star Trek before. But he got an extra day and a half, basically, to like, you know, prep. figure out what he's going to do. Yeah, to, to prep actually. And so uh, he, so this half day that he then gets after the City on the Edge of Forever is also just an extra half day that he that he also gets as a bonus to uh, continue his uh, to do his filming. So that was uh, lucky for him. So there's a little bit of overlap between the episodes. Yeah. And that kind of makes sense oh. because City on the Edge of Forever is going to have a lot of Kirk, Spock, or maybe Kirk, Spock, and McCoy on a planet all by themselves. There's no rest of the crew. And they all got some time off, so that was not lucky for them. Yes, you, you, you get these long scenes in which it's Kirk and Keeler together, you know, on a stairway doing some stuff. You're like, Spock, come over here. We want you to stand in the bridge with everybody else and, you know, <laughs> right. have uh, Sulu read his lines. <laughs> so on uh, day four, they did uh, all of their bridge work that day. Uh, there was also a, a scene shot uh, that didn't make the final cut. And I've never actually seen anywhere, but I've seen pictures of where uh, Kirk's nephew, Peter, is uh, happy. They put him in like a, 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 a mini uniform. He's got the gold, you know, shirt on with the emblem and the pants. And he gets to sit in the captain's chair, but uh, he does tell uh, Kirk that he's going to stay on Deneva and uh, continue to work with the uh, colonists there. So that's pretty cool. This is also interesting is that uh, on the set of this, DeForest Kelly was interviewed. And uh, we can see here that they've really started to congeal the, you know, the triad as we know them, right? right? Spock, Bones, McCoy. Because here's what DeForest Kelly has to say about it. I've been told that Dr. McCoy is the balancing rod between the two more extreme characters of Kirk and Spock. Now, McCoy is merely human. At times, he feels fear. At times, he can perform really dangerous acts. But he's always just a man who feels and thinks and who searches and who makes mistakes. The audience reacts to each of us. They admire Captain Kirk for conquering the faults of human nature, and they are in awe of Mr. Spock. But they sympathize and relate to Dr. McCoy. So I thought that was kind of cool, uh, just, you know, from a period piece standpoint that uh, mm -hmm. it's already there, you know. Uh, I've got some more stuff to talk about as far as behind the scenes, but some of it I'm just going to hit uh, during while we're talking and the rest of it I'm going to hit afterwards because there's a bunch of stuff that kind of happens going into the summer and whatever else. So we'll hit that then. But I say now uh, we just get to it. All right. Captain's log. Starting. So uh, we got our first establishing shot of here of the Enterprise. Uh, we see Kirk on the bridge. He crosses, crosses up to Uhura and says, uh, have you heard anything yet? She says that uh, no one on Deneva has returned our call. He then tells her to try another line, a code he gives her. She says, uh, but that's a private transmitter. He says, I'm well aware of that. Keep trying. And then he crosses to Spock. And then what he tells us is about some craziness, right? They got this map of part of this part of the galaxy that looks like it was made with a light bright or something. <laughs> and uh, a map talking about how 
the different parts of these planets. There's a there's a, a, a line across these planets that tell us that uh, some sort of madness has hit them and it brings them to uh, a mass extinction. Yes, we have quite a dilemma here. Right. And I'll point out this dilemma is never resolved. So why a straight line? Well, that we know about. I mean, they could have like sent some Starfleet people after it, but. Right, yeah, so. But in, in the in the storytelling narrative sense, it's never resolved. Yes. Yes. We've been presented with a problem, and by the end of the episode, we're still wondering why a straight line? Where were they going? Uh-huh. I mean, I understand that they were using people as arms and legs to build robots to carry them in that direction. But where right. were they going? To build ships. Yeah, to where were they going, exactly. Never solved. Sulu then tells us that there's a ship that is driving itself towards the sun. They try and intercept it. They try to hail. They won't answer. The ship just gets closer to the sun. The outer hull temperature keeps rising. Tension is building. Then, so, just before crash. At this point, yeah. we have, like, science problems. Okay. Right? Right. So there, he goes to warp eight inside a solar system. Mm -hmm. And you're like, well, how long would it take him? at warp eight to go from, let's say, the outside of the solar system to the center. <laughs> How fast is he right. driving the ship towards the sun in an effort to save these people? So at warp eight, in one day, you can go about 2.8 light years, which means uh -huh. you are going about 122 AU per minute. Okay. Right? So... And I figure it's, you know, it's about a minute that we're in this tense, will he, won't he, right? So, like, how fast is he going, right? What kind of ballpark? Well, Pluto is about 40 AU from uh, the sun. So, the presuming sun. a solar system-sized solar system here, right? One okay. of which they weren't starting off dramatically further away. And it's possible they were that they were coming up on Deneva. he you know basically could have that would have been like going three times the distance of pluto toward the sun that's the dilemma so it's like it, it and the sun doesn't right. seem like it's rushing up at you because it good it should from the point of view of being at pluto appear like a bright star a, you know a, a bright speck of light right and it basically starts off being sun-like, right? Now, again, right. we have the problems and we can have saving issues like, well, they went from magnification 40 down to magnification 10. And you can rationalize parts of it. This isn't game-breaking nonsense, but it is the kind of stuff that it, when you're familiar with how big and how fast things are, you're like, wait a minute, he's entering a solar system at warp eight? <laughs> And this is what we see, you mean one? and it takes right. this long. You mean, you mean by once we know how Trek works, you mean that's what... Uh... Right. So yeah. I mean, we've kind of established, though, that warp eight is super fast. Yeah. And here he's using it in a very local distance. Too and close yet, to the sun. Right. I mean, one of the things it kind of indicates is these things haven't been worked out with precision. So it's not like they yeah. could like, do the math. And figure out, yeah. you know, I think we're a little bit high with warp eight. But what they have established is that warp eight is really, really fast. They almost never use it, right? Yeah. 
here we are using it inside a solar system with lots of gravity, you know, gravimetric zones here, right? Basically a bunch of dipping places in which you have these gravity wells, and you're shooting through that thing at really high speed. Yeah. Now, what does Han Solo, I think he's on your shirt there, say about going too fast near large gravity objects? Right, yeah, exactly. Gets, I recall. Yes. And his and his he only can go like one point five because he can yeah. only go point five fast light speed. And he's the fa he's got the fastest ship in the galaxy. There's the story actually like a little bit. Like they wanted, a little bit like too they fast. Were thinking, they were thinking drama, right? They're thinking, oh, let's yeah. go as fast as he can. But they weren't thinking, oh, if we're going implausibly fast. We should go yeah. slower and talk about the fact that we've got to like course correct for planets. They're in the way. It's dangerous. We could get sucked into the gravity world of the supergiant. You know, careful. This is the next generation. That's exactly what would have happened. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And they would have shown. I mean, there's that opening sequence in in next generation shows. They were ready to give us some inter, you know inside a solar system flying around, dodging planets. So just before it crashes into the sun, we hear the ship reply. He says, I've done it. I've done it. They're gone. And it crackles. And the ship burns up in the sun. The Enterprise does a quick about face and leaves the sun behind. No one can explain what's happened or why this guy flew his ship into the sun. Uhura they then tells us the madness, that right? They attributed to what? The madness. The madness. Yeah, I mean, yes. they already know that madness uh, ensues. Like, oh, look, yeah. madness. Let's not give it another thought. It's just madness. Right. This guy was crazy. Uhura then tells us that there is no response from the transmitter that Kirk had passed on. Keep trying, he says. Bones comes up behind Kirk and then asks the pivotal question. Jim? Isn't your brother Sam and his wife uh, stationed on this planet? Dun, dun, dun. Credits. Back at it. We got Stardate 3287.2. We are on, Din uh, they've arrived on Dinova, one of the most beautiful places in the galaxy. We don't get to see how beautiful it is at all. Yeah, right, exactly. We get this quick call from Sam's wife. She's basically saying, please come help. Come help, uh, but they'll know, so I must hurry. I must hurry. And then click, she's gone. We find out that Kirk's brother, Sam, is a uh, research biologist on the planet. They uh, get ready down in the transporter room, get ready to beam down. Phaser's on stun, he says. Spock arrives and says that the, the uh, amount of people on the planet are there, but they are unusually quiet. There's very little activity going on. They all beam down. And once they beam down, we get a shot of the, I don't know how I didn't write this down. Where they were filming at, it was like this uh, new built in the 60s base group. Mm -hmm. That's why all, all the buildings have that crazy like modern art out in front of it. Uh, everything's in this very clear modern style. You know, it's a very 60s deco. It looks very cool. Everyone looks at it and goes, yes, this is, very modern. This is what the future will look like. Right, exactly. This must be the mo this must be what the new modern will be. Scans show that the people are on the planets. They're all there, but they are all in the buildings and quiet. 
They start to head toward Sam's lab, but as they do, a group of guys in Logan Run's jumpsuit comes screaming, saying, We don't want you here. Go away. It's for your own health. But then they attack. They fire and bring the group down. Bone scams them. He says, while knocked out, they should all be calm, but something is driving their nervous systems to be overly stimulated. So it's interesting here because what we have is a moment that was left over from the original treatment. It happens a couple times where people are people say one thing but then do another. It happens later in the in the fight with uh, Spock when he gets jumped just before that commercial, where the guy is like basically saying like, "Go away, go away, you know you don't want to be here." Go so far as to say like, "Kill me, kill me, just put me out of my misery," blah blah blah. So what's not in this episode, which again is a really cool idea that they should have used, but was left on the uh, writer's room floor, was the idea that the creatures inside were making them do one thing while their minds were actively saying, no, we should be doing another. We should be doing, you know, they're constantly trying to send the crew away. Right. As though the, the creatures had control of your body. They, had over, they were more powerful than your mind in controlling your arms and yes. legs. But your mind could still control your mouth. You're you're now so like one of the metaphors of consciousness is that you are really like a rider on an elephant. The elephant is going to do what it's going to do, and you're just a rider. So you that's why you can't stay on a diet. It's why you can't just be whoever you want to be. Right. Now this like takes it to another level, right? You are totally just. I'm just along for the ride here. I have no pretense. Exactly. I'm in control. Crazy neural parasites. Suddenly, we hear a woman scream. Ah! So Kirk rushes off. He wants to find where the woman was screaming. But what he says is, fan out and follow me. Yeah, and everyone just follows straight behind him. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like, everybody spread out. But everybody go where I'm going. (laughs) So uh, we cut to the interior. There's this woman trying to hold up a metal plate to her vent. Uh, she's screaming, they're here, they're here. The crew runs in and uh, Bone sedates her, you know, knocking her out. We find out that it's uh, Sam's wife, Aurelia. So when I watched this as a kid, I don't know if I missed the opening scenes. I don't know what happened. But how I found out that Kirk's brother was on this planet was in this next moment right here where Bone says, Jim, is this your brother? And they go and they turn him over and there's Shatner with a, a mustache and a great beard. I had never noticed that before. Oh, really? No. So I'd always heard, you know, oh, your brother's on the planet. Oh, Jim, is this your brother? But I'd never noticed. Oh, wait a minute. That's uh, that's Shatner in a mustache. <laughs> yeah. I had to, great, great temples. Yeah. So I was watching it this time and I was like, wait a minute. Was that? I had to go back and pause it and go, yeah, that's Shatner. <laughs> So sure enough, my memory of, of watching this episode was after uh, it was after Star Trek three because uh-huh. I remember seeing it. We were like, okay, so we got the death of Kirk's brother here. We've had the death of his son in Star Trek three. It's like this guy and his the family. Death of Spock. Yeah, with the death of Spock, right? This guy, every death circles this this our hero character here. It's crazy. Yeah. And you know, it never ends in a wedding. So. Yeah. Unlike Next Generation, which does effectively end in a wedding. That's true. Fair enough. So uh, we also find Sam's son, Peter, is here. 
He's okay, but he's unconscious, as he will be for basically the whole rest of this episode. Yeah, that was some... <laughs> I mean, he's a real actor, right? I mean, he's got all this stuff, but he basically just lays in bed the whole show. Yeah, exactly. Well, at least he's getting paid. That's cool. Yeah. And he gets a speaking scene, so he gets paid. It just got cut. Uh, so it's now this is a really nice moment that I actually liked. Kirk takes a moment here to like sort of silently grieve. He leans up against the wall and just kind of like taking it in, thinking about it. And then Spock approaches and kind of gives him like even another minute to just like, you know, be there in the moment, take it in. And then Spock, of course, then has to interrupt and be like, hey, we got to we got to get back to what we were doing here. Of course, says Kirk. So they, they start speculating that this must be the madness that has swept the galaxy, causing all the genocide. But how and why, they don't know. Bones beams uh, Sam's wife and his kid up and says that Kirk should come with him because uh, then he can be there when, he, when uh, Aurelia wakes up. So aboard the Enterprise, uh, they are unsure what is, still unsure what has caused their agitated states. He's waiting for the plates to come back from the lab. I don't know. What did no. he do? Some x-rays? Like, <laughs> what's happening here? All of that scanning, all those scanning devices he has aren't even working. Plates. Yeah. It's like, yeah. well, why are you using the 19th century technology, McCoy? I find it's yeah, right, exactly. cases like these. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I also will take my measurements with a slide rule. <laughs> <laughs> So Aurelia wakes up, Kirk goes, uh, he tells her about Sam. I wrote, that's a rough way to find out your husband died from yeah. his younger brother who looks just like him. Yeah, and of course, now he's saying, it's it's Jim, it's Jim. Yeah, but and she doesn't get one of these, Sam, Sam, <laughs> which, you, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. they really look that alike. Exactly. Wait, who are you again? I forget. Kirk then asks her uh, what happened. She says that uh, they arrived eight months ago in a visiting ship. Something made the crew, made the crew of the ship bring them here. It's not their fault. It's not their fault. It's not their fault. She says a lot of times. So Bones tranks her again. She calms down a bit. We find out some more. They use pain to control the people. They're forcing them to build ships. But don't let them go any further, she says. Don't let them go any further. And then she dies. Kirk's nephew is now alone. Dun, dun, dun. Bones vows to do everything that he can to save them. Kirk now beams back down to the planet with a renewed sense of urgency. Got to figure out what's going on here. He fills in the crew about the creatures. That's what we're looking for. Well, we heard a buzzing coming from that way, says Scott. Let's go check it out. And so then we see these, like, jellyfish creatures stuck to a wall. Except that they can fly. And there they are. There's a nice piece of editing going on here because uh, these things are flying on, you know, strings. It's pretty obvious. But yeah. they edit it in just a, such a way it's not overly obvious. But our keen eyes can tell what's going on here. The crew fires on. It is overly obvious. But it's not like painfully stupid, like it goes off this way and then it hits his right. back and you're like, what the hell? <laughs> it went that way. <laughs> so uh, they fire on the creatures. It takes a bit, but uh, one finally falls off the wall. 
Spock says, it is life, but not as we know or understand it. Captain. <laughs> Captain. Kirk replies with, and it bared, uh, and it, uh, it bared up under uh, full phaser power. Spock wonders if they should risk bringing one on board, but Kirk doesn't want to stay there any longer. He says, this might be a trap. They all turn around and start to leave, and suddenly, oh no, the one that we saw shot pulses and then flies and lands on Spock's back. Kirk tries to remove it and eventually does. Spock, Spock, are you all right? Are you all right? And we go to commercial. Back to it. McCoy and a now redheaded chapel for some reason are doing surgery on, on Spock's back. Uh, by the way, they're doing surgery in the dark. <laughs> chapel especially is so shadowed. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like they're doing Renaissance Chiroscuro, right? We're like, <laughs> I'm emerging from total darkness to operate on Spock. <laughs> That's because, you know, there's special lights going on underneath the skin that we can't see. Inside Spock, they see something intertwined around his nervous system. Bones thinks it's all he can do and starts to close him up. But Chapel asks, is that it? Is that all you're going to do? Bones gets upset. Hey, if you're going to, if you can't assist me, then call another nurse. Or if you're gonna be here, you better help me out. You better choose one of those things to do now. On the bridge, McCoy brings a sample of the things intertwined into Spock's nervous system. Both Kirk's nephew and Spock are far too gone to say with any conventional surgery. Bones goes on to speculate that the creature uh, creatures have a stinger and they leave it in there like a bee or a wasp. Now notice they mentioned a bee or a wasp, but not like a jellyfish. <laughs> Why? Is it because these things look too much like jellyfish? Anyway, the stinger intertwines them in the, into the host and causes all the damage. In sickbay, Spock awakes, saying that he won't. He won't! He won't! But then he does. He runs out of sickbay. <laughs> Frenchie Chapel. <laughs> That's what I call it. <laughs> Frenchie Frenchy Chapel calls up to the Frenchy bridge and warns them about to become a hairdresser. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, she's a uh, nursing school. school, school, school. Yes, <laughs> nursing school. Nice. Um, Chapel calls up to the bridge and warns them about Spock, who then suddenly appears on the bridge in the turbo lift. They all fight him off. Now, it's funny. You have to look really close here. They do a great job of doubling the stunt guy, but he's just bigger than Leonard Nimoy, who's especially skinny in this episode. And so it doesn't quite work. It works, but it doesn't quite work. Doesn't matter. They trink him. Back in sickbay, Spock awakes. He apologizes for his weakness earlier and uh, trying to take over the ship. Pain. Is a thing of the mind, he says. This I must better control. I am a Vulcan. Kirk asks, but what about your human half? It is proving to be inconvenient, says now, Spock. So here, we're getting a conception of the Vulcan that's almost 180 degrees opposite of what we'll get in the very next episode. <laughs> Which admittedly... You know, it was a, a summer away, right? Right. When they start season two in episode one, <laughs> we're going to have 
not the Vulcan who is like, I don't even experience your human emotions. You know, I don't even have emotions. Yeah. It's a, I'm physiologically different from you. Although my human half is something I have to battle with because it has emotions. Instead, we learn that the Vulcans are eaten up by their emotions mm -hmm. and that they're using philosophy and mental discipline to keep that in check because otherwise what breaks out is this like super violent it's a romulan right a romulan gets loose yeah and they're keeping that guy in check with these mental disciplines and their philosophy of, of what we'll later know is you know the philosophy of surak yeah and in this episode it's still like no i'm so physiologically different from humans that i don't even feel stuff like this and what i'm gonna do is uh I'm just going to will myself not to feel it. But my human half is fundamentally different. Because otherwise you'd go, as is like we get with uh, Michael Burnham. You take a human, uh -huh. you teach them the mental disciplines of the, of the Vulcans. You, you raise them in the Vulcan way. And anybody could do it if they were disciplined enough to actually apply the philosophy and the disciplines of the, of the Vulcans. Yeah. But early on, it's like, no, I'm, I don't even, like, early on, episode two or three, an adrenal gland, how inconvenient. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, we, but we've also gotten the idea, too, I think in Dagger of the Mind, too, isn't that where we also see this idea of, like, pain is, like, this mental construct and that we can use right. our brain to, like, suppress pain. And so it's interesting that we're, we're drinking bringing that idea back into this episode. Kirk says, uh, I need you. And if you can maintain, maintain control, we'll see. But for now, I'm going to keep you uh, locked up here in the sick bay and sedated. Kirk then asks Bone, uh, Bones to uh, save his nephew and Spock. Bones reminds him, but what about the millions of people on the planet? Shouldn't we be saving them too? Bones leaves. Kirk thinks about that for a second, and he leaves. And yeah, at this so, point, I, mean, I thought to myself, go ahead. It seems like, on the one hand, a false dichotomy, right? Uh -huh. Because, okay, we, we have our two guinea pigs. They're here in sickbay. Right. If we figure out how to cure them, we have automatically figured out how to cure everybody else. That was the so, next thing I was going to say, exactly. But on the other hand... It, it, is the, it is the case, I think, that McCoy calls them out and says, perhaps your attention is a little too narrowly focused on just a few of the patients. And we need to think about the, the bigger problem as well. And, and I think Kirk yeah. does go, you're right. I am really just focused on these two patients. Who, you know, I am not only one of which I'm related to and the other of which is my best friend. Yeah. After Kirk leaves, uh, Spock... Still in, uh, still in, is still tied down to the bed, but because he's Spock and has superhuman strength, or super Vulcan strength, he pulls himself out of the out of the uh, the what are you straps? Yeah, and apparently without anyway, really using leverage either. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> uh, in the transporter room, Spock tries to beam down to the planet, but the Scott is to there. Pull up his way down. <laughs> yeah. Scotty stops him. Kirk arrives a few minutes later. Spock offers up the opinion that he should beam down to the planet to study the creatures. His system is already ravaged and is in the best shape to do it. 
Bones says that uh, he wouldn't like to have his patient running around. Kirk, rightly, I think, allows Spock to go down to the planet. This is the thing, is that if, if Bones would have just said, hey, you know, he's could not be himself here still, right. you know, blah, 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 that's perfect. But instead, he argues that, like, hey, he's my patient, and I don't think he should be going anywhere, you know? And, of course, that's would, what he argues instead. Would Spock engage in this insubordination and try to lie and deceive and trick her, his way to the planet's surface? I mean, he was supposed yeah. to stay in sickbay. Rule number one violated, right? Yeah. He lied to Scotty. He attacked another officer. Court martial yep. offense, apparently. <laughs> so, like, isn't that three strikes? <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. So it would have made much more sense for McCoy in that case to being like, this is not the Spock we know and love. Who knows what, what other deviant, you know, non-Spock actions he'll take on the planet's surface. Yes. Just more proof of a bad script. On the planet, Spock is attacked from behind, and we go into a uh, commercial. Back to it. This, uh, this, uh, this attack goes on for like three more seconds, and then <laughs> Spock quickly takes him out with the Vulcan hand pinch. Holding of his senses gets tougher and tougher as he nears where we were in the area previously covered with the rubber jellyfish. I also think fighting kind of wears him out in a sense that like he's he's lost his mental composure because he had to be physically active and Yeah. That's fair. He's more in touch with his physicality while he's doing that. Sure. So he takes out another one of the rubber jellyfish and uh he opens up his uh toolbox here. His metal Toolbox. It is a metal toolbox. <laughs> it is not a satchel. It's not some kind of carry-all. Nope. It is a red fire truck toolbox is what that is. And it sounds like one, too. Yeah. He grabs his sample uh, and then uh, goes back aboard the Enterprise. And puts it right next to the wrenches in his toolbox. <laughs> yes. It is aboard here that we... It is aboard the ship that we find out... Uh, that it's like a, a single brain cell from a now, larger... On the ship, he's in this cool container. That yeah. looks futuristic. That looks like science. Yeah. As Not a red metal. To, you know, uh, a going, well, I got, the, I got the pipe. We'll see if it's rusted through. <laughs> yeah. With the latch on it in front of it and everything. Yeah, everything. So uh, they figure out that this is just one cell, part of a larger brain. It's communal. They all communicate with each other and draw upon the power from each other as well, which is how they can withstand multiple phaser shots. So I wrote here, I said, you know, if this were an episode of The Next Generation, I feel like what they would just do instead is figure out what planet all this started of figured out where like the hive brain really emanates and yeah. then just go there and take it out. You know what I mean? Right. That's what I feel like they would have done. But no, this is the original series. So that's not what they do. So this is all where the show, the episode really starts to lose me. Right. Okay. Because we just have scene after scene of them like, well, there's nothing we can do. And then Kirk's like, well, you got to try. Okay. We'll go try. Nope. Still can't figure out anything else. Oh, yeah, but have you tried this? Uh, no, we'll go try that. 
nope, still haven't figured out anything else. All right, but what about this thing? Oh, yeah, that thing. Okay, yeah, that never even occurred to us. Let's go do that thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just like, it, it's too many scenes in a row of the, what I felt like is the same thing. And then by the, and then you start to get a, like, a little bored of it. And then by the time, like the solution, which is like, hey, let's throw everything into this magic box and turn a bunch of light on it, right, is mm-hmm. not exciting either. You know what I mean? What they ultimately do of like trying the UV satellites and blah, 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 that's a lot more exciting. So, you know, why not just make that the, I, you know what I mean? It's I just felt like this is where it all starts to fall apart. Like the plot just sort of crumbles here as we have seen after scene of like what feels like to me just filler. Right. So are are we how how far in do you think we are? Uh I think that at this point there's about 20 minutes left. Okay, so it's you know, right at like maybe like 30 minutes in. Okay, so I wrote down at 35 minutes. <laughs> okay, fair. At 35 minutes, they discuss the ultimate trolley problem, right? Okay. So, you know, I, I mentioned last episode was a trolley problem, right? Because yep. yep. we, we have Edith Keeler versus the future. Yes. And here... Who died who hadn't. Here we have the million people who they might have to kill to save them versus um you know finding some other way to uh end this disease right right and they so at first spock is like <laughs> we may have to kill them to save them and then spock says no he's being you know the doctor we can't do harm right and kirk as i've suggested you know many times does not accept either option he's, he goes for the third way right there must be a way to save the people without having to kill them. And then we try it on Spock, right? In which right. case we are basically doing this dilemma. We're using Spock as a guinea pig. We've already kind of established that there's no way he's not going to be harmed by it. So we're kind of guaranteeing some harm on Spock. And then it turns out we blinded him. Mm-hmm. And then immediately someone comes up with a report, you know, demonstrating that they didn't need to use white light. They, you know, it was some other part of the spectrum. Probably yeah, gamma rays, right? Almost certainly gamma rays. Oh, I was thinking UV. Okay. <laughs> then we give them a really bad case of uh, uh, suntan, right? Although so, as, yeah, a Vulcan, as a Vulcan, he's, you know, probably totally resistant to something. We've already established their planet as, you know, desert-like and... So we've got these really good dilemmas, these moral dilemmas, which in, in a sense is like what Star Trek is all about, these dilemmas. Right. And the things that I kind of feel like have, have gotten in the way of the episode are the fact that we're making television in 1966, 1967, right? It's the spring of 67, okay. and we're making this. And so one, it's all happening within an episode, right? In like I, I wrote down how many minutes it was. The whole episode it was like forty-eight minutes. Okay, from beginning to end, and that's too short for this story, right? Right. And secondly, the special effects are not up to giving us a hive mind experience. The jellyfish are goofy. 
Um, even I think the idea that it stings you and then you have a parasite is less satisfying than having, if, if it's really a hive mind and there's all these cells everywhere, why not, why not give it like psionic powers? It's already got the ability to like resist phasers on full force. Why aren't they psionic? And one possible answer is we've done a lot of psionics this season, right? We've had these creatures that were, but this you think is a really good candidate for mind control. And I understand why they wouldn't want to use mind control again. So at least make the parasites better. Like one right. thing about the parasites is that apparently the minute you get stung, they're all over your nervous system. They grow really, really fast. Yeah. Which again, if this were a mo like, look at how long it took them to to work with Ash's medical condition, which we didn't even know what it was for a long time. <laughs> so you could have a period of time in which we didn't even know that Spock has been messed up. Instead, you know, yeah. their their experience at Denebo might have been like, oh man, they got it, they got that madness. Well, we're gonna have to quarantine the planet. Oh well, uh -huh. back you know to our mission. They go on you know all, multiple missions before we get to that point where we'd started with Ash realizing, oh, he's got some kind of post-traumatic stress syndrome, right? And he starts right. confessing to Burnham that he's, you know, that he was tortured and that, you know, bad things happened. And so we'd start seeing these, like, one of the things that I thought was really good is Leonard Nimoy had this twitch that told you he was in pain, right? So he starts yes. doing the twitch, right? And for like a couple of, yeah. you know, episodes, he's got this twitch and you're like, the hell's up with Spock? And then finally, yeah. Spock has to confess to Kirk that ever since you know uh, Deneva, I've, I've had this pain like a uh, uh, fibromyalgia or uh, you know this other thing, and I you know it's just a lot of pain. Gotta get you checked out, yeah. You know, and bones, I can't figure it out. And so we again, episodes go on, and we still don't know what's going on before finally he's in the excruciating pain. And then again, we figure out now you've got the parasite. Now we see the parasite, right? <laughs> yeah. Our medical stuff has figured it out. Okay, you're eaten up by a parasite. And you've got to, you know, is this what's going on on Deneva? It becomes a part of a, you know, a season arc. And then at the, you know, at some point they go back to Deneva because they've got the cure and they do the thing and they, woohoo! <laughs> As opposed to all this happening in 48 minutes with flying plastic jellyfish that, you know, just are like dangling on a string. Yeah. They don't even move like they have motive force. And so you've got this really good set of moral dilemmas. And they're just not supported by the format of the show or yep. by the special effects that the show is able to do. And, you know, as you mentioned, there's some things that just don't feel totally thought through. It's funny so, because in the, uh, in the book about this episode, Cashman and Osborne think that maybe there were too many hands in the script because, mm -hmm. you know, Carbostas did a pass. Gene Kuhn did a pass, DC Fontana did a pass, and Roddenberry did a pass. So maybe there were, you know, maybe there were too many hands in it. Maybe it was overthought. You know, that was his take on it. It's just like there are all these ideas, and uh -huh. maybe there are too many ideas, you know. Yeah, I mean, that may be so true, but they're all good ideas, right? There's stuff like, I want to explore yeah. this stuff. 
Right, exactly, exactly. You know, there, I think that a lot of the great episodes are the ones that are like, you know, that dedicate themselves to just one, you know, clear idea, you know, or maybe one or two ideas, you know, as opposed to like, oh, now we're going to do this, and then this is going to be a thing, and now we're going to have Spock go blind. But don't worry, by the end of it, he's going to be fine, because he's going to give him That was problem, these... right, is that he was healed too quickly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, again, another thing I didn't like about this episode, because it was like, I, you know, I, Infinity War was that kind of same thing for me, right? Where like the big thing happens at the end, which you just know is going to be cleared up in the next movie. So you're like, is this right. really that big an emotional thing, or is this just going to be fixed, you know, in the next ten minutes, as it was Although, in this episode? You know, they did give you the destruction of Molnir in Ragnarok, right? Yeah, well, that's true. Yes, and that was a thing that like they he didn't just like go out and oh, I got my spare Molnir here. <laughs> <clears throat> right. Well, not in that movie, anyway. Yeah, but you, so you could imagine a couple of episodes dealing with Spock. Like, at first, Spock tries to adopt to his blindness. And then he yeah. begins to realize, wait a minute, I'm seeing shadows, or I'm seeing lights, or, you know, I'm seeing... I, I, I'm seeing something, right? Because, of yes. course, he's like, I forgot about my inner island. <laughs> Which was goofy, right? Yeah. And so, like what that's and so my question is even like what happened? Did the inner eyelid just like shut and then just stay closed until they felt like okay, it's safe again. We can uh, the inner eyelid can open up. Yeah. You know, it's like what even happened? It's just so yes, weird. seeing some real recovery for Spock. Yeah, it took some time. Yeah, you know, in which, for example, you you know there would have been times where let's say he's. Uh, at first, he's off duty, right? Like in one episode, he's sitting around in that blue thing with the the V neck with the black thing, the black shirt, right? Yeah. Like he looks like he's in that, and he's like sitting in his quarters, listening to music and or listening to lectures or um, you know whatever, talking to his family. You yeah. know, hey mom, how's it going? Oh, it's you know so sad to see you like this, you know, Spocky, and. Uh, then in the next episode, he's he's on duty, but like he's he's not at his station because he's merely giving right. scientific advice or doing math in his head. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, you know, at that point, he's like, you know, I'm starting to see stuff. Uh, you know, we should we should try regenerative therapy because uh, you know the Vulcan physiology. Yeah, it's worth a try. Well, what are your odds, doctor? I wouldn't give it odds. Uh, doctor, uh, ten percent, I think, is the recovery rate. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Damn your statistics, green-blooded goblin. And you know, you'd have this recovery, and it would be difficult for the characters. They'd have to work through it. That would be cool stuff. And they resolve it all in a basically a, a reveal scene. <laughs> Not blind. Yep. I mean, that could have been a whole other episode, you know, basically what you're describing yeah. there. It could have been a whole, let's deal with Spock being blind as opposed to like, oh, no, we're going to wrap it up because we're episodic TV. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to skip through a bunch of the stuff in this final uh, few minutes since we discussed most of it already. We do have the point where, uh, you know, Kirk realizes there's more than just two lives at stake. We have to stop it from spreading, even if it means killing a million people down there. Dun, dun, dun. So then we get this uh, briefing room scene where Spock and Bones debate, you know, the, uh, as I wrote it, the needs of the billions. 
outweigh the needs of the few millions. <laughs> this too is like the like Infinity War, you know, it's like Thanos, you know, who's trying to bring balance into the whole world and is like, I'm fine with killing half of a population if you know the rest of the population is going to be fine. Kirk demands his third option and then realizes, hey, it might be light. Of all the things that they've tried, they never tried light. Who knows why? That that seems creature. You know, on the one hand, like one of the things they're they're pointing to is that Kirk is in fact a, a scientist, right? He's right. the explorer, he's a scientist. He's able to come up with a solution that Spock has overlooked. You know, so that's cool. And as I pointed out, there are many occasions where they mix Kirk, either say something, um, a principle of science, or he reasons through things scientifically. They want him to be a scientist. Right. But yeah, ha coming up with the, where like Spock is listing all the principles of, the, of a star and never mentions that it gives off light. Uh, but if you think about it, so this is the one thing I go in a positive towards this. If you think about it, all the, uh, you know, the Denevians are inside, right? So they're not outside being exposed to light. And the creatures themselves are like in a building, under a thing, behind a wall, you know. So yeah. they're they're definitely keeping away from the light as well. Not outside at all. There's no one outside. So they do the lab test. It works. A million lumens. A million candle lumens. But we need to test it on a host. So uh, without any doing any other practical scientific research, Kirk Bones and Spock decide uh, Spock, who volunteers willingly to go into the room with, again, out doing any other kind of important research to see whether or not this works or not. And uh, he goes into the room with no goggles because there are no goggles on the planet. So Spock sits in the little suntan chair and uh, they really ramp up this drama here. You know, mm -hmm. Spock is the best first officer in the fleet. If something happens to him, it'd be so sad. They throw the switch, the light pops on, they open the door, Spock is fine, the creature is gone. Uh-oh, but he's blind! <sighs> anyway. So they send out the satellites with the, with the, UV, the UV rays and they're deployed all around the uh, planet. Uh, this is another one of those things. Again, I send you to the uh, Trekkie channel on YouTube because they always do great comparisons of what was originally on the show and what, what the remasters did. Uh, so this is cool because here when we get to see the, the you know satellites they just cut down to scenes on the planet so you never actually saw any of the satellites at all uh so in the end of course the uv rays or whatever they are free everybody we see the tape from the rubber jellyfish fall off the wall and melt into steaming hunks it almost looked like they were cooking chicken you know when we saw those the the jellyfish melting away i'm like oh that's just frozen chicken they're just uh, cooking away there Okay, so then we have this another scene which irks me, which is is then uh, like Kirk is then pissed at Bones because Spock went blind, right? He's like blaming it on Bones for you know not thinking that this could happen when he doesn't even hand him the goggles, Captain Jerk. Um, <laughs> Oh, but, but then something happens, and then Kirk calls down to uh, Bones, and he basically is like, you know, this wasn't your fault, right? You know, this wasn't your fault, Bones. Don't worry about it. Yeah, it wasn't his fault because the three of you were all in the same room making the same decision. It's nobody. It's all your faults. Yeah. It's not just poor Bones there who's feeling the worst about it. Anyway, Spock arrives back on the, rid the bridge, and we find out about the inner eyelids. Then uh, Bones uh, 
Spock goes back to work and Bones goes up to Kirk and says, uh, hey, don't ever tell him that I said he was the best first officer in Starfleet. Spock overhears him. And then Kirk says, uh, oh, see, you're so concerned about his Vulcan eyes. You forgot about his Vulcan ears. <laughs> and that was the end of that. Blah. That's what I wrote at the end of that. Blah. Anyway, Operation Annihilate actually came in $11,000 over budget. Weird, I know. Some of it was the special effects and whatnot, I guess. Spend too many, too much money on the jellyfish. So the first season ends 140. What's that? Problem. I mean, this their budgets are so small. That's true. That's not yeah. helping. They're basically like going to the craft store, you know, to, yeah. to get special effects. I mean, it, it's you know almost like you know we're cutting out with felt with scissors and going, look, it's an alien. Yep. Well, you just put glitter on felt, dude. That's not an alien. <laughs> That's a child's craft project. Hey, if you put it as a hood over somebody's head, that quickly becomes an alien. <laughs> the first season ended with $146,000 in the red. Yikes. It's like two episodes. The show that was also going into the red, and that was called Mission Impossible. So with these two big shows, obviously we had a... Desi Lu had a problem. But don't worry. We'll find out much more about that going into the second season. In the meantime, moving on from that episode. And the April 24th, 1967 edition of Daily Variety, the trade published the top 40, top 40 list of the latest 30-city Nielsen surveys. Star Trek with its final first-run episode of the season, came out in a respectable number 37 out of 90 shows. So that's not too bad. Almost in the top third. Robert Justman also chose not to include this episode on his list of suggested summer repeats, even though it appears to give the network everything he's been asking for. Well, that's because this episode sticks. That's what I say. See, you think about it. There's 52 weeks. We got 29 episodes. It leaves us, what, 24, 23... It was 22. They showed 22 more episodes over the summer, or repeated 22 episodes. Right, because, I mean, there's always going to be, uh, you know, something gets, I forget the word now, or preempted, right? There's going to be a sports yeah. event. The president's going to talk to the nation about the importance of, you know, uh, whatever. Vietnam. Could be. Could be. Could be personal hygiene, you know. Who knows, right? <laughs> That's probably more the 50s. Right, exactly. All those, uh, all those uh, kids need to be popular. Let's not overlook yes. the importance of hygiene. Yes, all those little shorts. Here's Bob. Bob's got a problem. The kids just don't seem to like him. <laughs> Remember that NBC had actually called for four more episodes, so they were supposed to come up with the number thirty, but they just didn't have a script ready to go. So NBC was nice enough to be like, all right, fine, we'll just make it 29 and we'll just stick with that. That's fine. And that aired April 13th, 1967. Was it a Friday? Yo, probably was. <laughs> probably was. So in early, uh, early summer of 1967, the AC Nielsen compiled the top 10 list of the highest rated series with teenagers between 12 and 17 throughout the month of April. And guess what number was number one? Bonanza. Guess what was number two, though? Star Trek? 
The Be- Beverly yeah. Hillbillies. It was then I spy Gomer Pyle, the uh, all-star basketball six-game playoff series, Family Affair, the Thursday night movie, The Avengers, and then coming in at number nine, finally Star Trek with Green Acres at number 10. So that was, those are the uh, favorites of the teenagers in the uh, summer of 67. Well, there you have it. So uh, from here on at this point, too, uh, starting in the spring, going into the summer, this is when, like, the Star Trek merchandise took off. Uh, they had a board game, which wasn't very good, but they had one. Uh, they sold uh, 100,000 units of the USS Enterprise model kit. Uh, Bantam published the uh, first Star Trek paperback. There were well, comic Thursday. books. Thursday, not a Friday. Too bad. Too bad. <laughs> All merchandising make good news for uh, Star Trek's lead cast members. Every time Kirk and Spock had their images package, a paperback, a comic, or a book, there was a royalty paid to both Shatner and Nimoy. And, of course, Desi Liu and Roddenberry, of course, made money as well. So then somebody came up with the great idea of, hey, why don't we make a, a, an album based on Star Trek? And so uh, they hired the guy who who – who, who sold the uh, amazing song, I've Got a Lovely Bunch of Coconuts, and was like, well, if this guy can do some kind of crazy, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Concept uh, starts, Yeah, it's not that. Uh, it starts with an N. Uh, novelty. Yes, novelty album. It's going to be this guy. This guy went into Star Trek, like, watching the episodes, and he knew a little bit because his daughter loves Spock. And so then he was like, well, why don't we make this a Spock album? That'd be a really cool idea. Mr. Spock, uh, you know, sings a song. He uh, wor- he reads spoken word on a couple of other songs. Everyone at NBC is like, is this really what we want to do? And uh, Robert Justman, the producer, is kind of like, uh, no, it was Herb Solo. It's kind of like, uh, do we want a crazy Spock album out there? Is this really going to be the best for our show? Well, they were all proved wrong. Because it entered the Billboard album charts on June 10th of 1967 and remained there for an impressive 25 weeks, selling steadily and well through the Christmas buying season. Even the track selected as the album's first single, A Visit to a Sad Planet, made it onto the charts. (laughs) The name of that album is Mr. Spock's Music from Outer Space. Dun, dun, dun. The music company that made the album, Dot, was then happy to sign Nimoy to a long-term contract, which is then how we got the uh, the, uh, the the story of Bilbo or whatever that song is that he sings. Yep. <laughs> and sang again in that uh, car commercial with the other Spock. <laughs> exactly. Back to the story that we started a million years ago where uh, Roddenberry had wrote lyrics to the theme song. Alexander Courage over this summer decides he's going to try and sue Roddenberry, saying that uh, this is ridiculous. He only did it so he could share the royalties. The the lyrics are even awful anyway. Didn't matter. Roddenberry won. 50% of the royalties belong to him. Did you know, by the way, what the lyrics sound like to the, so- to the song? No. Because it's awful. 
And uh, I had heard uh, there's a bootleg. You can find it on the internet, people. I advise you to go find it of uh, Tenacious D with Jack Black singing the lyrics to the song. And I thought he had made them up. I thought that there was no way that these were the lyrics that were actually written. You're like, he's a comedian. Are. He's making a funny. Exactly. That's what I thought. <laughs> Let me sing for you uh, a little bit of um, a little bit of what that sounds like. Beyond the rim of the starlight. My love is wandering in star flight. I know he'll find in star clustered reaches love. Strange our woman teaches. You don't even need to know anymore. That's just how ridiculous that those words are to that song. So, uh, oh, this is also, I love this. This is fun, too. There was a second nod, uh, or there was a, a nod given to uh, Star Trek uh, by a society who voted uh, Star Trek to be the 1967 Television Award for Highest Quality of Fantasy and Imagination. That was the name of the award. Given out by none other than the Count Dracula Society Newsletter. What's even more amazing, as Cushman and Osborne point out, is that it beat out Dark Shadows. <laughs> <laughs> that made me so happy. I loved reading that. That was amazing. You know, they, they, I guess it's Don Black they should have gone got, right? Who's that? For what? So if you want some you know, <laughs> lyrics to go to your music and... <laughs> They don't have to make any sense, but they're not like <laughs> mind-numbingly stupid. Yeah. You, uh, and here I'll I'll tease something from the future. You uh, you get the lyrics to Thunderball. Oh. Right, written by Don Black because they're cool. You're right. like, yeah, I like that song, but of course you listen to the words and you're like, they don't actually mean anything. <laughs> they don't make any sense. <laughs> not even the little right. pieces. Not, not together as a whole. <laughs> it just doesn't make sense. <laughs> so uh, another thing that was given out by or an award given to the uh, to the crew of uh, Star Trek was that the sound department received a nomination from the uh, motion picture sound editors. How cool is that? So uh, they sent uh, an, a nice little thing to uh, them. Also, the biggest. Uh, the biggest surprise is that they were nominated for an Emmy. So that's pretty cool. It's the most nominated science fiction series in a single year of television history. How about that? Including Outstanding Dramatic Series, where it would run against I Spy, Run for Your Life, The Avengers, and Mission Impossible. Also to receive an Emmy nomination that year was Leonard Nimoy, who said of it, uh, I thought, whoa, what a thrill, particularly because the nominations are done by your fellow actors. And I thought... They're getting it. They can see what I'm doing. It just really deeply moved me. So uh, Star Trek did not go home the big winner that night, but Desi Lu did win two big ones that night. Mission Impossible was the big winner for Outstanding Dramatic Series. And also Lucy. She won her Emmy that year for The Lucy Show. And uh, that counted uh, most 
to everyone at Desilu because uh, she was now crowned the funniest gal on television. Well, that's it. That's all I got for this episode. I think it's a lot. I managed to pad it up a bit by talking about some stuff that hit that summer, which is good. So that uh, so that's it. We're taking a break at this point from uh, Star Trek, but just probably for the next three or four weeks. Thunderball. Uh, that's a really uh, it's a great Bond film, also from the year 1967. So we might as well boom do that. That'll be great. And also, uh, I thought I was looking at uh, what episodes of Doctor Who came out in like 66, 67. And the big problem we have is that uh, most of 67 was the second Doctor with Patrick Troughton. Not that that in and of itself is a bad problem, but more importantly, that all of those episodes from the 1967 series are missing. Uh, yeah. So there's none of those Patrick Troughton episodes, but that's perfect because what that leaves us with is uh, Doctor Who and the Tenth Planet which is also great because it's our first regeneration episode, right? And the introduction of the Cybermen. So that's also fun. So we'll get into some really cool stuff talking about, you know, what TV was like, what pop culture things were also happening during the time of Star Trek, you know, give us all a little bit of context and historical historical meaning. I think that'll be, uh, it'll be really fun to us to uh, not only take a break from Star Trek, but to also uh, talk about some of these other really cool things that were happening in and of the time of Star Trek. So I think that's uh, pretty exciting as well. There is one episode, it's again, it's sad. There's an episode of uh, the second Doctor called The Power of the Daleks. And the uh, caption line on this is really fun and mentions a very similar planet to another one we know called The Newly Regenerated Doctor. Ben and Polly soon arrive on the planet Vulcan, a human colony. So that's kind of fun that we get a planet Vulcan there in uh, in uh, that episode as well. Too bad we can't do it. They're all missing. Sad times. But Well, that's it. I don't think you've got anything else to say about this episode or anything else, do you? No. Maybe I... about this season as a whole? It's It's been good. I mean, there's, yeah. we never kind of ran out of early you know it still feels early in star trek right yeah still, like i just mentioned we're gonna kind of rethink the vulcans yep in, in, uh, in season just one two. more episode well yeah. it's one more episode but it's a whole summer to reflect on mr spock and who he is and what makes him tick yeah no i you know it's funny because as we've gone through some of these last I don't know, maybe the last like five or six episodes with the exception of Operation Annihilate in my book, they've been really like solid episodes, some of the best, you know, especially in the season we go, you know, as we said, we've hit Planet, you know, A Balance of Terror. We've hit, uh, you know, uh, uh, City at the Edge of Forever. There's all these great episodes that, uh, you know, we've already hit in season one. And I know that there are a, a few more coming up in season two. So it's going to be uh, really fun to finally hit those uh, once we do. That's it. The end of season one. We did it. We got through it. We got some fun stuff planned over the next month, so we hope you join us for that. Otherwise, hey, thanks for joining us. As always, my name is Matt. Coming to me from Planet Houston is my brother, Ken. Say hello. Saying goodbye, Ken. Live long and prosper. There we go. Perfect. Live long and prosper. And we will see everybody. Bye.